let us turn now to the our text for the day, which comes from Mark chapter 15. As we're preaching sequentially through this book, Mark 15, 1, verse 1 through verse 15. So let's turn there and I'll read. Beginning to read then with verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, you, do, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. When the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that, they, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, uh, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they grieved out loud, or so they cried out loud again, saying, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding today. The title of the sermon is No Mercy for Jesus. And there's this direct comparison between Barabbas and Jesus in terms of worthiness to be crucified. Worthiness to be crucified. We cannot think of Barabbas, but we think of Jesus. And when we think of Jesus, we think of this awful incident where uh, Pilate asked the people of who they wanted to be really have released and the people cried out for Barabbas and not Jesus and then cried out for Jesus to be crucified so um, this sets before us this this amazing comparison and uh, <clears throat> as we see Jesus in this text we see the tremendous innocence of Jesus, the, the righteousness of Jesus compared with the wickedness of mankind. Every part of this every part of this endeavor or development shows forth the, the evil, the determined evil of the human being. And we see it not just in the lower places by ad hoc individuals, but we see it at the very pinnacle of the society 
at the highest courts of their land where the church courts and the civil courts intersected. And intersecting brought about great evil on this occasion. Instead of the greater concentration of leadership bringing about a, a greater fairness or a greater kindness, we see that despite the concentration of power, that there was uh, only great evil that was produced. And um, the, one, the one highlights the other. And so in our, uh, in our task today, um, we, we have a great burden to magnify or to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds so that he might be the greater object of our faith, so that we might see that uh, his righteousness is able to establish us in our righteousness, his his giving up his life is able to pay the penalty for us, even of the great love that we see here, where Jesus, despite being the good guy, is um, accused and then uh, convicted of being an insurrectionist, of being nothing more than uh, a revolutionary with no higher aims than to, than to overturn uh, the, the civil magistrate. Uh, as the scribes and the chief priests are trying to prove here. So um, uh, we, we see that the, the, more the, the more the one develops, the more purpose that's put into the convicting of Jesus, we see how, we see how this magnifies him as being more innocent, more good, more righteous. And the more we see that, the more we see, yes, this is a Savior whom I can trust. This is a Savior who I can put my trust in. This is a Savior with whom I can trust my very life and eternity. This is the one who needs to, uh, whom, to whom I need to go. So um, let's look at the text. And, and uh, the first thing I want you to note is the intensity, the intensity of the hatred against Jesus Christ. Jesus, we know Jesus is good, he's wonderful, and so he ought to have our love. The last thing that he ought to have is our condemnation, our hatred, our, our determination to do him ill, and these kinds of things, and yet that is exactly what we see. Uh, we see that he was arrested the night before, by the triggered by the kiss of Judas, he, he's been in incarceration all night long. What a night that must have been. Our text opens with verse 1 and says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. So here we see the setting where um, it's, it's relatively early in the day. And instead of taking their time, instead of starting the day in a more normal way, Immediately, all of the rulers are gathered together. It reminds us of Psalm 2, where the whole world seems gathered together and ready to assault the Lord. And this indeed is what was happening. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and council. They couldn't let the, they couldn't let the coffee cool, you know, to speak. They, they had to get to this. They had to get to the prosecution of Jesus. And they bound him, it says. This reminds us of some of the goings-ons of this past year where the 
government has used a overkill, uh, sent, basically sent in the SEAL Team 6 to uh, arrest certain political people, uh, attorneys and that sort of thing. Well, there was no need to bind Jesus, to, to rough him up, to manifest our power over him. He was in their power. He, could, he couldn't escape. He had made no move to escape. He had no inclination to escape. He was on a higher venture. But they were determined. They bound him with cords and, um, and delivered him then to the civil ruler. So up to this point, he's been in the focus or the focus of, this, of the church court. Now they take him to the civil court because the civil court had the right to crucify. The civil court had the right to capital punishment. Uh, one of the shames or the discredits that Israel had with being a, uh, a captive of Rome was that they no longer had the, the right or the power to capital punishment as a nation. They had to depend upon Rome to do that. And so Jesus is, developed, is delivered over to the, the Roman council so that they can, so that these charges that they had brought up that were here for religious charges, um, so that they can be preferred in a civil way. And uh, so this question is asked at the end of verse uh, 2 by Pilate, uh, are you the king of the Jews? <clears throat> this is one of those great questions that sometimes people look to in the Gospels. Uh, we're reminded how... Um, uh, just in the last chapter, uh, verse 62, or 61, the chief priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Blessed? And in order not to prevaricate or dissemble or in any way mince the truth, Jesus said in verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So verse 62 and then this verse here are two of the clearest inter interrogatories that Jesus has faced in his whole ministry as to who he was. Are you the Christ? He said, uh, He said, I am. I am the Christ. And then he quoted the book of Daniel uh, regarding the, the Christ of the Messiah coming with power to judge Israel. And they didn't like that at all. Now here's the civil ruler asking Jesus, are you the king? Of the Jews. Uh, now, when Pilate asked this, this is what this is one of the accusations that had been brought against Jesus, and it cut a couple of different ways. Uh, if it could be proved that Jesus was claiming to be the the king of the political state of Israel, that was then claimed by Rome, you can see how there would be a friction between those two ways of looking at things. Rome considered. Uh, Israel a vassal state to serve them. Now if Jesus could be argued to be the king, claiming to be the king of this uh, vassal state, then that could have implications about their claims for independence from Rome. That could have been developed. Uh, the other thing was here that Pilate, I believe, is also mocking the Jews to a degree. Because this poor fellow, if this poor fellow who stands before him is the political king, then what, what is the circumstance of the political state of Israel? He, he stands before Pilate not as a great general, not as a man with legions of soldiers, not as a man of great influence. He stands before Pilate as a man 
who was uh, um, uh, ready to be convicted of things like blasphemy and being an insurrectionist. And so Jesus does not stand before Pilate in glory, at least outwardly. We see his glory inwardly because we see that he could have at this very moment Jesus could have called on the legions of angels, and the legions of angels could have decimated the legions of Rome. And they could have overturned the political situation in a moment. They could have sent anyone who, who lived through it back to Rome, saying that there was a uh, terrible abyss in the east of the Mediterranean that, that threatened the whole of the empire of Rome to be cast into it. That could have been what was done. Jesus had that power at his hand. But Jesus had a higher purpose. He had a higher power. He had a higher determination. And what was that? It was to save his people from their sin. And so in order to save his people from their sin, he knew that he must be passive. That he must like, he must let the judgment of man fall upon him. He must not resist it. For to resist would be to lose the greater battle. And that was of, of uh, redemption for his people, salvation for his people. And so uh, Jesus stands there. And, and the, the great puzzle for Pilate was that, that all of these accusations are being heaped on Jesus. And Jesus seems the least interested in justifying himself. You know, the, uh, the, nobody likes to be accused of something that they didn't do. Take the, take the youngest child in the congregation with a brother or sister, and the brother or sister says, Mommy, you know, Danny did this. And Danny is saying, No, I didn't. That's, the, that's so basic to our defense mechanism and to our understanding of who we are. We don't want to be charged with guilt or evil or crimes or misdemeanors or anything else, whether it's in the family setting or in the state. And yet, with well, this basic sentiment of the human heart, Jesus seems utterly impervious to it, seems utterly unconcerned. It's really, uh, it's really um, remarkable because the religious rulers of Israel were so determined to prove Jesus a devil. They were so determined to heap evil on him. We've come through this great political season last year where for four years this was done to our president. And the good part of the population believed it. But you can, whether you believe it or not, you, you see that the enterprise was there. The effort was there to, uh, to uh, uh, demonize a human being. And this is what they were doing to Jesus in this case. They were trying to argue that the, the Messiah, the Son of God, was really uh, an evil spirit and a demon. But nothing in his life worked to that accusation or to that condemnation. Uh, Jesus didn't make people sick. Jesus healed them. Jesus didn't incarcerate people. Jesus freed them. Jesus didn't hate people. Jesus loved them. Even the people that he reproved, he was ever ready to open his arms to them and to welcome them into his kingdom. And so how do you prove a person like this? How do you condemn a person like this? And that's what Pilate was faced with. We see in the text, uh, it says that then in verse 4, then uh, Pilate 
asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus answered nothing. This text does not bring out fully how many accusers there were, how many accusations they brought against him. First from this side, then from that side, from one party like the scribes, from another party like the Sadducees. He's, he, prayed, he said he was going to ruin this temple and destroy it, and then he wrecked his own. All of these accusations that we've already heard, one upon another, they cascaded down upon the court. And Pontius Pilate is looking. The, the charges are mounting up like a mound of dung upon Jesus, and Jesus is saying nothing. And the text itself says that it was marvelous in Pilate's eyes. Marvelous in the sense that it went so, it was so counterintuitive to human nature and the way people normally behave. Why should we be why should we expect a different kind of behavior out of Jesus? Could it be that he was actually interested in saving us from our sin? Could it be that he actually loved us and hated uh, the the catastrophe that had befallen mankind in the Garden of Eden? Could that possibly be it? Of course, our Jesus was determined to reverse the fall of the Garden and to open up a new Garden, the Garden of the Heavenly Kingdom, the Kingdom of Heaven, that we begin to get uh, intimations of here upon this earth as we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. If you've ever studied the Roman world, <clears throat> there were certain blessings in it, but there were also many, many cruelties. Paganism is not a friendly thing. It, is, it does not create a friendly environment. It, it creates a very vicious environment where one person consumes another. And even the the emperors were not immune to this. There were many assassinations, many plots. There, were, there was much deviousness. There was a restlessness. There was a lack of peace in the upper echelons of Rome as well as in the streets of the cities. And this came to a, a, a climax at the time of the life of of Jesus Christ. The old glories of Greece, the old glories of the Grecian culture, which had been folded over into Rome, had run their course. And um, in terms of the philosophies of the day, cynicism, the cynics, it was a particular philosophical group, they were the order of the day. People no longer believed in any higher ideas. Even some of the cynicism that you see represented by the uh, Roman governors that intersect with the Gospels is brought out here. Uh, so that um, uh, Pilate marveled at the quietness of Jesus Christ because Jesus was proving that he was really who he said he was and uh, he wasn't waiting for the court to justify him. Jesus knew that he would be justified, not by the human court, but he would be justified by the resurrection from the dead. Let all these charges come upon him. 
Let people say what they would. Let they condemn him uh, to their heart's content. But in the final crunch, when he was crucified, dead and buried, then God's verdict would be heard. As it says in Romans 1, Jesus was justified by the resurrection of the dead. In the resurrection of the dead, whatever Rome or Israel might have said about Jesus in terms of his guilt, or in terms of his uh, his, his uh, worthiness of the death penalty, was overturned by what actually happened. The resurrection showed that Jesus was not a man who was worthy of, of, of death. The resurrection showed that he did have no sins himself. The resurrection showed that just as God had created righteousness to live forever, and if Adam and Eve had been righteous, they would have lived forever. But in the resurrection, God showed that these things were proved true. Jesus was really, really righteous, despite the condemnations of men. And so, though he was uh, executed by men and by both church and human courts, though all that came to pass, he was ultimately justified by the hand of God. God raised him up from the dead, showing that his righteousness was really righteous, that all of these religious leaders were rotten, filthy, corrupt fools. Imagine that. The cream of the Israelite society of that day, which was a religious society, the cream of that religious society proved to be, proved it, proved to be uh, utterly corrupt, unworthy of its mantles of leadership, unworthy of its positions of power. But the one who was condemned that is, Jesus uh, was proved to be the worthy one. And so uh, all of this comes to, 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 to pass now with this decision to be made who to let go at the feast. At the Passover feast, here was a, here's a good example of, of a political uh, or humanistic scheme. Uh, you know, politicians come up with their schemes, their ideas, and the more pragmatic they are, the more they work, quote, work, then the better they are. And so Rome, uh, one, of the, one of the schemes that she had come up with to help soften the, the, her hegemony uh, or her uh, enslavement of Israel was letting one, one prisoner a year go. We know that we, we give to our presidents the right to commute, com, uh, commute sentences, to, to uh, let prisoners go at the end of the, well, any time during their term, if they think, Real injustice had taken place, but usually it's reserved for the end of presidential terms where they will do this sort of thing and let people go. And um, these are just, you just see the, sim the parallel and the similarity between our times and this. So in this case, they had this thing where they would let, even if you were guilty of a capital crime, like Barabbas was. Barabbas was, uh, was, had been convicted of being a seditious and insurrectionist against Rome. Automatic, the automatic death penalty, automatic crucifixion, hanging out there in the road, being the object of scorn and derision for days. Took a lot, took hours, if not days, to die, and then your body just hung out, hung out there in the public, so that the birds could begin to eat it slowly. And uh, it, the Rome showed her complete disdain over uh, the people that she crucified and held up to public ridicule. But in this case, um, that would, 
But while it was executed, it was not the case. So the, the Pilate asks uh, the Jews, um, who do you want me to release? And um, I, I think he was making fun of them. He kept using this term king of the Jews so that this pathetic Jesus, pathetic in the eyes of the world, uh, pathetic in the flesh, he kept calling this person the, the, the king of the Jews. And uh, um, I, I think he was really mocking them even as he was executing his task as the, uh, the head of the, the Supreme Court, as it were, of the day. You want me to release you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him, that is, Jesus, over because of envy. How could these chief priests, how could they envy Jesus Christ? Well, they envied his goodness. They envied uh, his righteousness. They envied the fact that he had a popularity amongst the people that they did not have. They envied the fact that he had pronounced judgments upon them that they didn't like. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, or do you want me to release to you, verse 14, uh, or verse 11, Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas, who was the, the clearly the insurrectionist. Everybody knew he was a revolutionary. He'd been caught. He'd been a rebel. He'd been caught. He'd been found guilty. He was rotting in prison, ready, waiting to be um, executed. Uh, who, who do you want me to release? This good guy, Jesus, or this bad guy, Barabbas? And they chose immediately, universally, they chose Barabbas to be released. They would crucify, would have Jesus crucified and Barabbas to be let go. We see in this then the awful corruption of mankind and the great wickedness of mankind. And like I said at the beginning of the message, the more we see this wickedness, it puts, it puts even more emphasis on the beauties of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, uh, it illustrates... Uh, the indictment that God has against men and, the, and their wickedness. It illustrates the righteousness of Jesus had, the goodness of Jesus. And it, uh, it, it, it illustrates how God can bring down eternal wrath and judgment upon mankind and be absolutely just and uh, absolutely virtuous in his applying this awful judgment to mankind. How much more corrupt can we be than what was done to Jesus Christ at the end of his life? How much more corrupt can we be than to take the best human being ever since Adam, the best human being ever, and pile all of these accusations and all of this evil upon him? It shows how there can be there can be no claim for mercy on the part of mankind. In the end, when the when their sentence has been put upon them, when they have been bound up in such an evil judgment as this. And so <clears throat> uh, Jesus allows himself to be condemned. He goes to the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin, even though he's righteous. He is raised up again from the dead because of his inherent righteousness, the, the complete injustice of this case. He's raised up by the power of his righteousness, by the power 
of the Father's judgment and uh, and uh, the, the the purpose of His accomplishment, the purpose of His plan, is executed. And uh, my 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 last um, argument this morning is that this power, this this plan that Jesus had. This executed plan that Jesus had, it has real powers. If, if, if raising a person from the dead is abnormal, then the power of God is abnormal, but it's real too. And if the word, this plan of Jesus was effective, then Jesus is really able to bring his redemptive powers down upon us in our lives. It, really, it can really make a difference, a tremendous difference. It can totally change our lives. Just because we are not affected by that in our current emotional state or in the providences in which we find ourselves does not in any way diminish the power that's there. And the thing that we proclaim today is that the power, there's power in the gospel which is able to save us even unto the uttermost. Just this past week, I had an illustration of this because I was contacted by one of the women from our first church uh, down in western Pennsylvania. They were, they were coming up, up upon their, their 50th anniversary because the church was started in 1975 and in 19, or 2025, that will be the 50th year since the church up there was started. And, uh, and it was started by um, uh, Susan and myself, along with the other believers that were there. And so this woman, uh, who I knew from, I knew her family when we had been there before, she sent us a letter asking about a few details having to do with the start of the church. And it just got me thinking, and I, so I rattled off some issues. I said, you know, this church really started as a mini-revival. And I said, it's really the only mini revival that I've ever had in my life. So it's not like I'm trying to I'm trying to stoke up or work up tales of revival. My great ministries. You know, this is the only one and it was I was fresh out of seminary. I said to her that uh, <clears throat> in many ways I didn't know what I was doing, but I did know of the power of God. That's what we're talking about here. The power of God. And I, I knew something of the power of God because the power of God had changed me. It had affected me. And so when I came to the church, I began to preach about the reality of the power of God, that which was possible for all the people that were hearing. And I remember after we'd been doing this for a number of years, a couple of the older men in the congregation came to me and they said, Richard, we have not heard such things preached like this in 40 or 50 years. There were some eight, late 80 and 90 year olds in the congregation. And again, it wasn't that I was doing anything so great. It was just that they had lived through uh, the decay of liberalism, where men had come to counsel them and soothe them with pablum sermons that had nothing to do with the reality of God or the reality of Christ. And I, I just picked up the word of God and began to preach it and attempt to preach it with some fervency. And so what happened then when the, there was a controversy that came up in the United Presbyterian Church at the time, over the ordination of women elders, and uh, when I, they, they were going to force all of us that did not believe in this to ordain women. It wasn't just that you could passively go along with it and uh, 
and sort of remain neutral on the sidelines. No, if you were not willing to lay hands on a woman, then you were going to be removed from the church. And so at that point, uh, there were a whole number of us that decided that we that was time. If, we, if they were going to force us to disobey our consciences, it was time to leave the church. And uh, I just assumed that that church at that time would not get it. That they wouldn't. That they would think that I was a misogynist or a hater of women, and uh, that the, the the issue would never. That I, you know, I just didn't. I wouldn't have a day in court because the people just wouldn't see that it was an issue of the word of God, what God's word said or didn't say. And so I re- resigned unilaterally. But lo and behold, this preaching, these services that we've been having, uh, um really caught people up and uh, people began to come and say that their lives had been changed. They said, if you would stay here and uh, remain with us, that we would, that we would, we'd be willing to start another church. And so another church started up out of the ashes of this older, more liberal church based upon the real working of the spirit of God. Uh, in our lives. Later, I found out that that our that my coming there as their pastor had been uh, prefaced or preceded by a prayer group of the women in the church who had been uh, who had been affected by the Spirit of God and who had begun praying for a, a biblical pastor to come to them. And some of them had begun reading Banner of Truth books. One of, one of the questions that I received and the, from the pulpit committee was, what did I think of the Banner of Truth Publishing Company? I thought it was kind of a weird question, but I, I, I said, uh, that's a great publishing company. They, they, have great, they, do, they do a great work of publishing uh, some of these older Puritan works. And a couple, of the, a couple of the women smiled. I didn't know why they were smiling, but that was because they'd been reading Banner of Truth and they liked Puritanism as they had seen it. And so uh, uh, it worked out that God, um, through the powerlessness of preaching, the powerlessness of Jesus Christ, uh, we had, there were probably two dozen people uh, that, that had their lives changed. Many of the young people, that are there today, to this day, uh, had their lives changed by the power of God. So uh, Pontius Pilate said one thing, and the Jews said one thing, the chief priest said one thing, but God the Father, God the living Father said another, and Jesus said another. And in the end, the Father and the Son proved to be the effective ones. Now the the, the great thing about that to, for us today is that that power is still available for us today. We believe it on one hand, but like, uh, like Thomas, we believe and yet we have unbelief. We fail to give ourselves over to the understanding that, that the power of God is still available for us today. To awaken our minds, to awaken our hearts, to change us, to, to see, to give us different um, goals different motivations to seek the kingdom of God with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds. That is a power that God still has today. And if we give ourselves over to prayer, we can actually see changes in our lives today for the better. We can see deliverances from our issues. We can see um, turns this way and that way in each other's ideas, our Personalities, our characters, husbands and wives sometimes have have 
uh, differences, have problems. The God is open. He is powerful. He is living. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God is able to make changes in our lives today. And so we proclaim that. And even as Jesus is seen here as utterly powerless in this court, we see that it was because he was one step away from obtaining all power. The power even over sinners, the power over people who deserve to die, people like us. He was one step away from that crucial step that Satan did not foresee, that by going through this process, he could obtain a warrant for our eternal life and exchange that for the warrant of death that the law of Moses brought to our hands. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that as we study this life of Jesus toward the end of his life, we pray that we might marvel about it, especially in terms of the evident power that is there. We pray that we might see that even as the people mistakenly cried out for Barabbas, that Jesus Christ was the one of true worth and true power. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might not ask for Barabbas in our day. Oh God, whatever might be the alternatives to Christ, we pray that we would not cry out for them. We pray that we, pray that we would not cry out for peace or prosperity or money or position or power, whatever. Let Barabbas go. We pray that we might have Christ. Oh God, let nothing separate us from this one who is able to save us even unto the uttermost, even Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.